Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Today is our Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. So, unless you've been hiding under a rock, which you may very well have been doing given the state of things, you will recall in June the Supreme Court ruled that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 protects LGBTQ workers from on-the-job discrimination. It was a historic win for queer people across the country. One of the next questions, of course, was how far would the holding go to protect LGBTQ people in other contexts where federal statutes also ban discrimination on the basis of sex, such as housing and education. As lower courts worked to apply the ruling in Bostock, the Supreme Court in July began to roll back some of those protections, at least for LGBTQ people who are employed as teachers by religious schools. We are going to talk about that case in detail, as well as a Second Circuit case involving the right for an adoption agency to discriminate. Finally, we're going to talk about a handful of asylum cases involving lesbians, gays, and people living with HIV fleeing Mexico and Ghana. With us to discuss these cases is New York Law School professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments for the LGBTQ community here and abroad. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. Yeah. Still sheltering in place. Oh my gosh. Um, but school starts soon. I have to get ready for the beginning of the fall semester. Uh, I'm teaching remotely. Right. So I'll, I'll be teaching from home most of the time, although I could also teach from my office at school remotely by using my office computer. Uh, and I've actually been to my office for the first time in five months yesterday. Oh my so gosh. five months of accumulated mail to go through. Okay. <laughs> so let's dig right in. On our Supreme Court Roundup podcast last month, we covered a lot of ground, so you may have forgotten our very brief discussion of a Supreme Court ruling that came down only a month after the SCOTUS ruling in Bostock. The case, Our Lady of Guadalupe School, presents the question of whether certain teachers at religious schools are covered by what's known as the ministerial exception, which gives religious institutions the constitutional authority to discriminate in the selection of employees who meet the exception's criteria. But how broad is this ministerial exception, and how does it affect LGBTQ people? Art, let's talk about this case. Okay, well, in, in order to understand this, you have to have a little bit of background here about the treatment of religion under federal anti-discrimination law. So uh, Title VII says, among other things, that an employer may not discriminate, discriminate with respect to religion unless the employer is a religious institution, in which case it can discriminate on the basis of religion. That is, it can favor members of their own religion. They can establish a religious test uh, and the uh, religious test doesn't just apply to employees who are going to perform religious functions. Uh, in, a, in a case where this was challenged uh, involving the Mormon Church, which runs a lot of business activities in Salt Lake City, uh, the Supreme Court upheld this exception for a religious employer running a business. They said they can also require that people be the same religion but they can't discriminate based on race or color, sex or national origin. 
which are the other categories under Title VII. And uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act doesn't privilege a religious organization to discriminate based on disability. And the Age Discrimination in Employment Act doesn't privilege religious organizations to discriminate based on age. Uh, so that's as far as the statutes go. Uh, but then we have a doctrine that the Supreme Court has identified under the Constitution. And in some ways, this is a, an extremely old doctrine. This, this relates back to the 19th century when the court said that a federal statute, in that case, it was a federal statute that put limitations on the ability of American employers to make contracts with non-American citizens and bring them into the US as contract labor. Uh, there were restrictions imposed and that statute was invoked against the importation of a minister from England by a church in New York. And the Supreme Court said, well, just a minute, the free exercise clause, you know, First Amendment, church has a right to pick its minister and the federal government shouldn't be stepping in. So this ministerial exception for the purpose of hiring a minister and the government not interfering in the uh, ability of a church to pick its minister, who it will call to its pulpit, be its spiritual leader. The government shouldn't be interfering in that. Okay, well, that moderate application makes some sense. This became an issue uh, not so long ago when we got beyond churches. We got to other religious organizations that wanted to claim this ministerial exception for themselves. And to say, not only do we have a right to discriminate based on religion in picking our employees because we're a religious organization, we have a right not to be challenged on any ground when we pick our employees. Because our employees, even those who are not strictly speaking clergy, our employees play a role in the religious mission of our organizations. And this argument is that it's strongest with religious schools. And we had a, a, a decision from the Supreme Court, lower courts had been fiddling with this for several years and then finally got up to the Supreme Court in 2012 in the case of Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church and School versus Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We had a woman who went off on a medical leave and she was ready to come back and they didn't want her back. And she was a teacher in the church that was attached to the Hosanna Tabori Evangelical Lutheran Church. They had a, a school that was attached. It was on the grounds of the church. Uh, and most of the teachers, I would imagine, perhaps even all of the teachers were Lutherans. Uh, they had a procedure under which teachers who were interested in enrolling for advanced theological study could submit their application to be called to the ministry. That doesn't mean that they were employed as clergy, where they were you know, leading services regularly, something along those lines, but they were called to the ministry uh, and they were recognized by the congregation as being called to the ministry, as having a religious call. She wanted to come back. They didn't want to bring her back. She sued them under the Americans with Disabilities Act. They argued to the Supreme Court, the Americans with Disabilities Act shouldn't apply because of the ministerial exception because we consider her a minister, which means we have total freedom under the Equal Protection Clause to decide whether we want to employ her or not, regardless of what any federal law might say, because federal law isn't supposed to come between a religious organization and its clergy and its ministers. And the Supreme Court accepted the argument. Now, you, you look at it and you might say, well, these are rather unusual facts. 
The typical Catholic parochial school teacher, if not a nun or a priest, a lay teacher, and there are a lot of lay teachers in, in Catholic schools and in other religious schools, there are lots of lay teachers, they're not clergy. How should the ministerial exception apply to them? And that's the issue that the Supreme Court dealt with in its decision on July 8th in Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, actually, that was one of two cases that consolidated two Catholic schools within the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And uh, these Catholic schools, in each case, were being sued by a teacher, uh, one under the Americans with Disabilities Act, one under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. And the school said, but these teachers play a role in the religious mission of the school. They do a certain amount of teaching of religion to their students. This is at the elementary school level. They lead the students in prayers. They participate in leading them in prayers and they do some religious doctrinal teaching. Their main role, of course, as elementary school teachers is to teach arithmetic and science and English and social studies and all that kind of stuff, but mixed in. And of course, there's a sort of Catholic perspective that they're supposed to incorporate. So the, uh, the diocese in, uh, in defense of both these cases argues the ministerial exception should apply to them. And they argue, well, just a minute, we're not clergy. We don't have any advanced religious training. We weren't called to the ministry. We are not considered to be ministers of the church. We're just lay school teachers who are primarily teaching non-religious subjects. How can we be covered by the ministerial exception? And the Supreme Court was divided five to four on this. Uh, and uh, the op opinion by Justice Alito, uh, a proud product of the Catholic parochial school system himself. Uh, I guess when someone who went to a Catholic school sees a teacher, they see a nun. I don't know. But my understanding is the shortage of nuns is such that there aren't as many nuns teaching in Catholic schools as there used to be. But at any rate, uh, the court says, obviously, the difference between a religious school and a non-religious school is that a religious school has a mission to provide a religious education to its students. And the teachers play a central role in that mission. Even if they are not hired primarily to teach religion, teaching religion is part of their function and it's part of the mission of the school. So we think the ministerial exception that we recognized in the Hosanna Tabor case applies here, even though this is very factually distinct. And of course, the dissenting judges pounced upon the distinction. They said, these are not ministers, these are lay teachers. How far are you gonna take this? Right. And, and it's not just teachers, it's uh, you know guidance counselors and it's choir directors and music teachers, music leaders who are leading religious music during the service. Right, we've uh, talked about the organists before. You've right. that, that was one of the oldest cases. That was from San Francisco way back in the 1970s when San Francisco was one of the first cities to pass an ordinance against anti-gay discrimination. It was when Harvey Milk was on the Board of Supervisors. Uh, and uh, there was a case involving a church organist at the uh, first, uh, I think this was the traditional uh, Presbyterian church, the more conservative uh, sect. And they found out he was gay and they tossed him out. And he sued them. And he persuaded the court, they persuaded the court, the church, that he was part of the service team. Okay, so I guess 
we're all just going to wait and see how far the Supreme Court is going to stretch this exception. Can you tell us why we should be concerned with the recent Title VII ruling? Well, there are probably hundreds of gay religious school teachers. Oh, I see. And, but, but, you know, the, I would say the overwhelming majority of the millions of gay people who are employed uh, in companies covered by Title VII around the country uh, are not in religious schools. They're not working for employers who have a right to invoke this. So this is just religious employers, uh, like a religious school. So the question this, is, what about a hospital? What about someone who's employed as a grief counselor in a hospital that's uh, owned by the Catholic Church or operated by a Catholic uh, organization? Ministerial exception. I mean, if they're, if they're a chaplain, I would suppose a ministerial exception would apply because they're being employed as clergy. You know, so we're, we're going now from uh, schools to hospitals, maybe to nursing homes, you know, maybe to assisted living. You know, how far does this go? Sure. Uh, and the Supreme Court doesn't draw bright lines here. They say, you know, this is a very fact-specific thing. Now, Justice Thomas, in a concurring opinion, said, no, I don't think it's a fact-specific thing. I think if the church says that they're ministers, we should defer to that. Uh, but the majority didn't go that far. The majority said, no, we have to do a case-by-case, case, and they have to prove to us that they're ministers. They do have the burden of justifying it. Uh, and the dissent said, yeah, but you seem to be taking them at their word so much that we don't see a lot of daylight. This is uh, Sotomayor in dissent. We don't see a lot of daylight between Thomas and the majority. That's true. And, you know, it's really concerning because this is such a broad exception that can really just swallow uh, existing uh anti-discrimination laws. So it's deeply concerning if the Supreme Court is stretching it as far as it possibly can go to, you know, encompass all sorts of people as uh, ministers, hospitals, educational institutions. In, it can be engulfing. Right. And because it's, it's premised on the First Amendment, states and localities can't do anything about it. Right. That is, they can't, they can't uh, tighten up their local anti-discrimination laws to override this because it's a federal constitutional decision. Yes. And, and there we sit. As you mentioned, religious exemptions to uh, generally applicable non-discrimination laws, particularly in the context of LGBTQ discrimination, um, is something that's before the court before, and Masterpiece Cake Shop is coming back in Fulton County. So it's definitely, you know, while this is just one little little hole that, that you mentioned, more are coming. But I think before leaving this topic uh, of uh, how far Bostock reaches and uh, how far it falls short, we should mention two very promising developments that have occurred since the Bostock decision was issued. Uh, and that is courts in states which do not expressly ban sexual orientation discrimination, but do ban sex discrimination. We've had a decision by the Ohio Court of Appeals, and we've had a decision by a federal district court in West Virginia uh, deciding a case arising under West Virginia law. It's a diversity case. Uh, both of them pointing out that under state law precedents in those states, the states follow Title VII interpretations when their state statutes have similar language. And because most state anti-discrimination laws use Title VII style language, they say to discriminate because of sex, because of the way Justice Gorsuch dis, uh, uh, defined discrimination because of sex in Bostock, 
it carries over now. It's a Title VII precedent, and state courts in many jurisdictions follow Title VII precedents. So the Ohio Court of Appeals has now said an LGBTQ person has a cause of action under the Ohio Civil Rights Law, even though it doesn't mention sexual orientation or gender identity. And the West Virginia Federal District Court, bound to apply state law precedent, says, well, here's this West Virginia Supreme Court case that says we follow Title VII interpretations for our state anti-discrimination laws. So once again, they refuse to dismiss this case, which the employer tried to get rid of. Those are fantastic developments, Art. Those are very, and that's wonderful because Title VII itself only applies uh, to companies that have at least 15 employees on the full-time payroll. And uh, I saw statistics, I think the Williams Institute had a statistic that close to 50% of private sector workers in this country work for companies that are not covered by Title VII. And many of them will be covered by these state laws. Uh, some state law, they do have cutoffs of how many employees you need to be covered, like a mom and pop shop wouldn't be covered. But, uh, you know, a lot of uh, small employees in this country, a lot of people work for small companies, you know, a small construction company with a dozen employees, for example, uh, a, a small retail store that's not part of a national chain or something, and they, they have maybe eight or nine employees. They may be covered by their local anti-discrimination law, and uh, even if it doesn't mention sexual orientation now, it's possible it will be interpreted to cover that. So we've got a lot of interesting developments going on. Yeah, and we'll, I, I mean, this is just great, particularly given that Ohio, West Virginia elect their judges. This is not, these are not particularly liberal jurisdictions, and for them to be finding uh, the possibility of protection uh, for queer people under um, under their state anti-discriminate state and local anti-discrimination laws is fantastic news. All right, so let's go ahead and move right along with our next case. You have heard us talk about the Supreme Court decision to review the Third Circuit Court of Appeals decision in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. That case involves a foster care agency claiming a constitutional right to discriminate against prospective foster families headed by same-sex couples. We aren't going to talk about that case again, but instead we have a case with similar facts from New York that has been given new life thanks to a ruling by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Art, let's talk about this case and how it relates to Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. They have very similar facts. Yeah, this is New Hope Family Services Incorporated versus Poole. And uh, New Hope Family Services is uh, not church-affiliated, but it is a religious agency that is self-defined as a religious agency. Uh, and they, uh, they do adoption services in uh, the Syracuse area. And in order to be uh, recognized as an agency that can perform these services in New York State, uh, you have to be uh, approved by the New York Office of Children and Family Services, OCFS. And you have to meet certain criteria and you have to use certain criteria in evaluating people. And uh, they've been uh, an adoption service provider for more than 50 years. And they estimate they've placed more than a thousand children for adoption. Their rules are they will only place children with families that reflect the biblical family construct of the husband and the wife and the children. Uh, 
as to whether this is a biblical family construct, I think this is a New Testament biblical family construct because the last time I read it, Abraham had several wives. And uh, I think there, there are other Old Testament figures. Uh, they were into polygamy, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. So biblical, I don't know which Bible. Uh, but at any rate, this is, this is the model. This is the model they saw. Yeah. Uh, and they have never knowingly placed a child with a same-sex couple. You know, and uh, they've never been asked, they said. They said, the same-sex couple has never approached us. If they did, we would refer them to a non-religious agency that wouldn't have problems dealing with them. Uh, and so this is like the Philadelphia case. This is a case of an agency deciding to do an audit. And the decision to do an audit of their uh, of the agencies that they approved was because of changes in state law. I mean, New York state law was amended, uh, and this is I think this is even before the marriage uh, the marriage equality uh, statute was passed. Uh, they uh, the state's adoption law was amended in 2010. Uh, the year before we got marriage equality, we got it in 2011. Uh, it was amended to state that, quote, an adult unmarried person, an adult married couple together, or any two unmarried adult intimate partners together may adopt another person. Okay, no reference to gender of anyone there. Okay. And this was the legislature responding to events, responding to court decisions. Uh, we had a court of appeals decision from back in the 1990s that allowed second parent adoptions. Uh, we, uh, we already had decisions in some of the lower New York courts recognizing same-sex marriages performed in other jurisdictions. Uh, so uh, the legislature was responding to this by opening up adoption. And it said, may adopt another person. When Governor Patterson, remember Governor Patterson? When Governor Patterson signed that into law, uh, in his signing statement, he said, this law will not require any agency to change its current practices because it was merely permissive. Whereas the prior statute limited who could adopt, the current statute opens it up. So as a matter of law, you can adopt. But uh, the position of the state, and uh, even though uh, there were religious agencies that were opposing this amendment, to assuage their fears, they were told, don't worry, you don't have to change any of your practices. But what happens, the agency, the agency that enforces this, OCFS, adopts a regulation. The first regulation they adopted uh, shortly after the law was changed said that uh, an applicant to adopt children could not be rejected solely on the basis of homosexuality. So that was the first take. But two years later, they adopted a new regulation that prohibits discrimination and harassment against applicants for adoption services on the basis of race, creed, color, national origin, age, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, marital status, religion, or disability. And to take reasonable steps to prevent such discrimination or harassment by staff and volunteers, promptly investigate incidents of discrimination and harassment, and take reasonable and appropriate corrective or disciplinary action when such incidents occur. And now, with this new definition in place, the agency finally decided it's time to do an audit and figure out whether the agencies who we recognize and allow to perform these functions are complying with our regulation. Mm -hmm. So they did an audit, they did a site visit at New Hope, 
they found that the agency was a well-functioning agency. It was doing everything they wanted. But they also said, and please submit all of your, you know, your handbook and your guidelines and your rules and everything. And they go back to the office and they start reading through the stuff and they say, oh my God, they won't deal with single people. They won't deal with same-sex couples. Our regulation says marital status may not be a basis of discrimination. Sexual orientation, gender identity may not be a basis of discrimination. We've got a troublesome agency here. We're only going to provisionally recredit them and tell them they got six months to fix their policies. Did the agency fix their policies? Nah, not in your life. They went to court. Well, similar to the facts of Fulton County. Well, they're represented by Alliance Defending Freedom. What do you expect? So, <laughs> so you know, they, they go into court and uh, the, uh, the federal district judge says, get out of here. Get out of here. Didn't dismiss the case. This was, uh, was this a dismissal? Yeah, this was a dismissal. Uh, they had asked for uh, preliminary injunctive relief, and the state had asked for dismissal, and the district judge dismissed it. Uh, she said, you know, there's a reg valid regulation, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, uh, a neutral rule. It doesn't target religion as such. Uh, there's no First Amendment exception to it. Uh, that's the end of the story. And so it goes up to the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit says, hold your horses here. There's a question we've got. The statute itself, the statute itself doesn't forbid discrimination. The statute itself, as Governor Patterson said when he signed it, is merely permissive. It says, basically, the effect of it is that the courts of this state may approve such adoptions. It doesn't say anything about what agencies, what policies agencies may have. There is a question whether OFCS had the authority to adopt this non-discrimination thing without any legislative basis for it. And it does, it does certainly impose on the, the free exercise rights of the people who are running this agency, at least on its face, it seems to do that. Uh, you know, and uh, we note that the Supreme Court has granted cert in the case of Fulton B. City of Philadelphia. And so to the extent that they're relying, uh, the state is relying here on Employment Division versus Smith, that old case from the 1990s in which Justice Scalia said there is no general exemption from complying uh, with, uh, with rules that are neutral on their face and that apply to everybody. Uh, that seems to be up for grabs. I mean, Judge Raji, in her uh, opinion for the uh, Court of Appeals, said at least four members of the Supreme Court have at various times and concurring or even majority decisions suggested that the court should give a new look at Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, and as part of the agenda of the conservative majority on the current Supreme Court to broaden the free exercise of religion to the extent possible, it is possible that they will reconsider Employment Division versus Smith in the Fulton case, and that we may end up with a completely different landscape when it comes to people claiming exemptions based on their religious beliefs when complying with uh, neutral state and local laws. Uh, so the court said it was premature to dismiss this case. Mm -hmm. And since it was premature to dismiss this case, we're going to send it back to Judge D'Agostino in the district court and say, since we're not dismissing this case, since we're, we're saying you shouldn't have granted the motion to dismiss, you now should consider whether to grant a preliminary injunction. Uh, so now the, the district judge is going to have to decide 
whether there's a decent chance that New Hope will prevail on the merits. Well, that's very interesting, but it certainly seems like an easy fix here would be to go to the New York legislature and ask them to amend the original statute. We have a progressive legislature and a Democratic governor now here in New York, so it seems certainly plausible that we'll just amend the statute, prevent discrimination in the language of the text, and then we don't have to worry about this regulation. But when you take this case and the uh, case in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia and you put them together, it's just an alarming expansion of the free exercise of religion, at least for some uh, in American life, uh, at the expense of, you know, others' rights. And it's, it's certainly alarming and will keep people updated and our eyes on the prize here. Okay, let's move on to the next case, which is actually a series of cases. As readers of Law Notes will know, uh, we cover a lot of asylum cases every single month. And this month, we've decided to pull out three of those asylum cases that were being decided by the appellate courts across the country involving LGBT people and people living with HIV, fleeing Mexico and Ghana. These cases involve people who are trying to escape violence, danger, torture, even death in their home countries, and now they're facing overwhelming obstacles to seek protection in the United States. Art, let's talk about these three cases and how they paint a picture of what it's like to seek asylum in Trump's America. Okay, well, well, here's the situation. You know, there are people who have no trouble coming into this country because they've got a visa and they've been approved in advance to come in. But what we're talking about in these cases are refugees or people who claim to be refugees. These are people who in their home country are subject to persecution because of their politics or their religion or their uh, membership in a particular social group. Uh, they're singled out on a categorical basis. This isn't, this isn't persecution because of you as an individual, because of something you've done. This is persecution because of who you are, right. because you were regarded by your persecutors as part of a group that should be persecuted, that should be treated in a certain way. And by persecution, Congress, and this is also as part of treaties and as a part of international law, persecution is not just discrimination. Persecution is really oppression. Persecution is physical danger. Persecution is locking people up, beating people up, killing people, torturing people. There is a convention against torture that the US is a party to, which says uh, someone who is likely to be tortured if they return to their home country has a right to stay where they've landed. Uh, now, what we're talking about in most of these cases is people who entered on a tourist visa and uh, overstayed their visa, or people who showed up at the border without a visa and somehow managed to get across the border and then get intercepted or get picked up, and they want to stay here. And as a refugee or potential refugee, there are basically three categories under which they might stay here. One is asylum. Asylum is for people who have actually experienced severe persecution in their home country and are fleeing as a result. And they have to show, they have to, 
and, and they have to be very credible on this. They have to have evidence. And sometimes it's hard to establish this. Oh, yeah. They, they have to show that they are being persecuted. And it's not enough to show that they were actually physically being persecuted or locked up or beaten up or whatever, but that they were being persecuted because of their membership in one of these categories, because they were members of the political opposition because they were members of the disfavored religious or ethnic minority, because they were LGBTQ. Uh, since the early 1990s, the Immigration Service by uh, administrative decision decided that LGBTQ people can be considered, depending upon the circumstances in their particular country, as a particular social group. Uh, and if they are systematically persecuted on that basis, they can seek asylum on that basis. Now, if people were not actually persecuted in the past, there's a second category by which they can uh, receive protection to stay in the U.S. It's called withholding of removal. They are removable because they were not persecuted in the past, but we will withhold removal if they can show that it is likely that they would be subject to persecution if returned to their home country. And this is a case-by-case -case determination to a certain extent. Some of it relies on general information about what life is like for people in that country who uh, fit in one of these protected categories. Uh, and uh, the, it's very difficult to, to win a withholding case. You, you really have to show that even though you weren't persecuted, you're likely to be, very likely to be if you're sent back. And then the third category is protection under the Convention Against Torture. And there you have to show it's more likely than not that you would be subjected to torture or severe physical injury at the hands of the government or forces that the government can't control or won't control. Similarly for withholding, if you could show that you would be persecuted because for a lot of LGBTQ people, the persecution comes from family members or neighbors not necessarily from government officials, not necessarily from the police, although sometimes the police are the problem. And if the police are the problem, that's official persecution. But, you know, what about it's just customary persecution because people in that country hate gay people, and so they go after them, even if the government does not go after them. So that makes it very difficult. Uh, these are incredibly difficult cases sometimes, and the difficulty is increased when the individual who is seeking asylum or withholding or protection under the convention, which is referred to by its initials as the CAT, C-A-T, mm -hmm. uh, many of these people are not represented by lawyers. And many of these people arrive in, in this country in a traumatized condition because of the way they've been dealt with in the past or the fears they have of how they might be dealt with in the future. Uh, many of them are afraid to talk about being LGBTQ or being HIV positive. Uh, you know, they, when they show up in this country and they first talk to an official of the immigration service, uh, they may be very reluctant to talk to some government official about being gay. Because in their home country, that could get them thrown in the clink. That could get them in some, in some cultures, they could get you know, a caning or a whipping. So, you know, there are, there are people who are very reluctant to say anything. Uh, and then, uh, if they give a story that sounds that there's a credible reason for them to seek asylum, then they get uh, a hearing before an immigration judge. And the problem is, what if the story they give under oath and testimony in the hearing differs in any way 
from their written asylum application or for what they told the interviewer when they were first interviewed. And the judge looks at that and says, well, I see inconsistencies in their story. I think that reflects on their credibility. Uh, I mean, there are many ways that these hearings can go wrong. There's, there are the immigration judges who say, oh, you don't look gay to me. If you believe it, there are cases like that, that judges who carry stereotypes in their mind, and if the person doesn't meet their stereotype of a gay person, all of a sudden they doubt their credibility. But more often, the credibility problems crop up because of inconsistencies in the story, because uh, they didn't remember things properly, because they got their dates mixed up. They, they uh, differed on the number of incidents they recounted, or who was present, or things of that sort. And the immigration judges just seize on these inconsistencies. And when they turn down people, they can appeal to a, a, uh, an agency called the Board of Immigration Appeals. Uh, the immigration judges and the Board of Immigration Appeals work for the Justice Department, not for the Immigration Service. Uh, and the Attorney General has the power to do a final review of Board of Immigration uh, uh, Agency Appeals. Uh, so there's a very complicated administrative process. There are statutes that are very complicated procedurally. And ultimately, cases can end up in the courts of appeals. They go directly to the courts of appeals, uh, as in the usual thing when you're a, you, a, a judicial review of an administrative agency decision. Uh, and the courts of appeals, by statute, are very, very limited. They can't substitute their view for the Board of Immigration Appeals or the immigration judge about credibility issues usually, or uh, about fact-finding. The, the, the refugee is pretty much stuck with the factual record, and they, they have to argue to get any foothold in the Court of Appeals that an error of law was made by the agency. Uh, and there's very limited relevance of the Constitution to this as well. Uh, because uh, Congress is given plenary authority under the Constitution to regulate immigration into the United States and asylum and things of that sort. And so the statutes take priority uh, to a great extent. The courts defer. Uh, so to win one of these cases on appeal is unusual, which is why we have a very unusual, uh, the first of these cases, a Ninth Circuit decision involving an HIV positive man from Mexico. And it has become very difficult for refugees from Mexico uh, to win asylum in the United States uh, on grounds of being gay. Now, this man says, I'm not gay. But he says, in Mexico, at least where I come from, people are assumed to be gay if they're HIV positive. Once it's known that you're an HIV positive man, people assume that you're gay and you're treated the same shoddy way that gay people tend to be treated. And uh, he, uh, he appeared before an immigration judge in 2009. He contended that his HIV status subjected him to violence and discrimination in Mexico. And he also presented evidence that uh, HIV positive people are presumed to be LGBT in Mexico and they suffer the same threats of violence and discrimination. Uh, and he was found to be credible by the immigration judge and by the Board of Immigration Appeals but they said, we don't think, we don't think he meets the bar for an asylum claim. He has not testified that he has been personally persecuted in the past. And as far as withholding of removal, 
he hasn't persuaded us that it's likely he would be in the future. And they took account of some great progress that has been made in Mexico uh, with respect to marriage equality. Many states allow same-sex marriage now, and the uh, national Supreme Court has said uh, that same-sex couples are entitled to marry, but the way Mexican jurisprudence works, it's, it has to be state by state until at some point uh, there's a tipping point and it becomes national law. Uh, but it's, it hasn't reached the tipping point yet, but there is a case pending before the Mexican Supreme Court where it might. Also, uh, anti-gay discrimination is officially illegal in Mexico now, but there's some uh, questions about how vigorously the government enforces that. And there is certainly a lot of evidence that law enforcement officials in Mexico tend to be intensely homophobic. And many of these gangs that are such a problem, the drug cartels and everything in Mexico, are also intensely homophobic. And there are horrific stories about rapes of gay people and trans people and things of that sort by law enforcement. So, you know, there, there is a lot of stuff out there that suggests that no matter how good the official legal climate looks in Mexico, things are pretty difficult still for LGBTQ people and for HIV positive people in Mexico. So the Ninth Circuit said here, you know, the, uh, in this case, the petitioner introduced evidence from a sociologist who has studied Mexico and LGBTQ issues in Mexico, and who says that despite all this legislation, there's been a backlash. There's been a public backlash by people opposed to homosexuality, especially people who are religious opposition. And so things are even worse for gay people than it was before they got all these good legal advances. Uh, and the BIA uh, and the immigration judge paid little attention to this and didn't give them much credit. And the Ninth Circuit said by a two to one vote, this is a three judge panel, they sent it back to the agency. They said, you didn't do your job here. You really didn't do your job here. There's a lot of stuff that he was presenting. Uh, they, they didn't allow him to introduce certain evidence that uh, the court says they should have allowed him to introduce. Uh, they said, because this evidence isn't on the record, we take no position on whether it helps his case, but it should have been introduced. So they sent it back to the immigration judge. And this is very, very unusual. And uh, it's explained in part by the fact that he had counsel. He had uh, some lawyers from Eugene, Oregon, a law firm that was representing him, with amicus support from the American Immigration Council and from a, an immigration law clinic at Cardozo Law School here in New York. They had a, a student working on it. And he also had someone from the National Immigration Litigation Alliance in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of people. And once you get up to the Court of Appeals, you, you get amicus briefs, you get a lot of people and you might be able to turn things around if you get the right panel. Now, there's a dissenting judge, and you know uh, Trump has appointed so many people to the Ninth Circuit now that a typical three-judge panel will usually have at least one Trump appointee, and the Trump appointee just tears to pieces the majority opinion. They say, well, just a minute, this sociologist, she's been testifying in a lot of cases over the years. She sees backlash all the time. She even sees backlash before these court decisions. So he sought to discredit her and to, to say that the BIA was correct in not uh, giving much credit to the sociologist's testimony. Yeah. So, uh, but this is, this is good. And by contrast, in the Seventh Circuit, we had a case which we report upon. Uh, and uh, they turned down a Mexican lesbian uh, 
she and her 12-year-old daughter applied for admission to the U.S. at the California border. They were immediately placed into removal proceedings under the procedures put in place by the Trump administration. As soon as people show up asking uh, to be treated as refugees, we send them back, if at all possible. Uh, they conceded they're removable because they didn't have visas. And they hadn't uh, been uh, specifically persecuted. Uh, and uh, the woman applied for asylum because she said she had received threats regarding her sexual orientation and she feared returning to Mexico. She had come out as a lesbian in her 20s after she had had two children. Uh, the threats uh, constituted text messages, postings on social media, and a letter. And one of these uh, stated that uh, the person who had sent it would, quote, cut off a piece of her skin for every hickey she left on his wife. And she, would, she should watch out for her kids if something bad could happen to them, which sure. was a threat. Uh, and she testified about her very religious family and how they rejected homosexuality. She testified that if she returned to Mexico, she would have a very difficult time finding work because of her sexual orientation. And her daughter, who had actually attempted suicide once, would be bullied because of her mother's sexual orientation. And the immigration judge, the Board of Immigration Appeals, found her testimony was credible. But they said, this doesn't rise to the level of persecution necessary for a grant of asylum. She applied to the Seventh Circuit. Her case was decided by a three-judge uh, panel in a procuring decision. They said she had not previously experienced any physical harm. And the threats were not of most immediate or menacing nature sufficient to ground an asylum claim. And uh, no basis for providing her relief in the United States. She was uh, represented by an attorney, but a sole practitioner, and there were no other institutional lawyers on her side or amicus briefs. So, uh, and also Mexico. You know, it depends which judge you get, depends which circuit you're in. Uh, and maybe it's the difference between HIV and being lesbian. I don't know. But uh, these, these cases go off on their individual uh, situation. Now, we have another Ninth Circuit case. The Ninth Circuit has tended to be much better on LGBTQ immigration issues in general than many of the other circuits. This was a gay man from Ghana. And uh, I would think gay man from Ghana, it should be a slam dunk. Right. Uh, under, the, uh, under the Convention Against Torture. Uh, and uh, in this case, uh, you know, the, the immigration judge and Board of Immigration Appeals found inconsistencies in his story. He mentioned certain things in the initial interview that he didn't mention in the, in the initial hearing, and they, they cast doubt on his credibility. And the court said, well, you know what? We don't think it's all that inconsistent. We think there are ways you can rationalize what he said at the first interview with what he said at the hearing. Furthermore, the immigration judge said, I don't find him credible, but didn't explain why just said, I don't find him credible. He said, well, that's not good enough for us. We're not going to allow uh, a claim for protection to be decided solely on the basis of a judge saying, I don't find him credible, when he doesn't at least provide an explanation for why he doesn't find him credible. And if the explanation is these inconsistencies, we don't think they're so inconsistent. We think it's possible to rationalize what was said here under all the circumstances. And furthermore, under the Convention Against Torture, let's take a look at what the State Department has to say about the treatment of gay folks in Ghana. 
You know, it's it's uh, to send someone back to Ghana. It's it's a Muslim country where there's deep religious antipathy to homosexuality, where people are subjected to harsh treatment. Uh, it's like sending this guy back to being tortured or killed. Uh, so uh, you know, this isn't like Mexico. This is this is like a country where gay people are not tolerated. So this one goes back uh, for reconsideration to the agency. No, these cases can be incredibly expensive and difficult and drawn out and depressing. I know Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York, handles some of these cases as well. And it's very, very difficult uh, and labor intensive. So uh, thanks for giving us a little bit of an update. And now I'm wondering if you could give us an of note to kick us off here. Okay, of note, Doherty versus Leon, a case by the Arizona Court of Appeals. This is a bizarre sort of case. All right, we have a lesbian couple. They move to Arizona. They become friendly with this straight couple, a uh, man and his fiancee. And the straight couple, when they learn that these women are planning to get married and have a kid, uh, the, the woman, the fiancee, says to them, oh, oh, Ray can be your donor. Ray can be your sperm donor. That's the boy, the man. So they, they're very friendly. They have talks. They extend over several weeks. They come to an agreement. Unfortunately, they don't involve lawyers and they don't put it in writing. But they come to an agreement and uh, three uh, samples of raised sperm are delivered to the women. Okay. And so one of the women, Giovanna, is uh, impregnated. We are not told by the court whether this was done by a doctor or whether it was one of those homemade turkey baster baby things. But at any rate, she became pregnant. And uh, the women actually moved in with the straight couple for a while, but it seems that uh, the guy would drink and become abusive when he was drunk and everything, so they moved out after a few weeks. And they actually lost touch with them. Uh, and the women ultimately got married because the timing was just right with the marriage equality movement and everything. It came along and Arizona, same-sex marriage became available. They got married shortly before the child was born. And so uh, the other woman in the couple uh, was listed, Dominique, was listed on the birth certificate as the mother. And, you know, no big deal. And there are Arizona court cases from after uh, Obergefell and Pavan versus Smith. And the Arizona courts have now accepted that the uh, presumption that a person married to a pregnant woman who gives birth is the legal parent of child and gets the name on the birth certificate. No contest. Okay, so things are going along fine. And actually, Dominique, it turns out, the, uh, the co-parent, as it were, is really uh, taking on most of the, of the burden because, and once again, the court is sparing on details. Giovanna got into trouble with the law and ended up in prison. So Dominique is raising the kid alone. And she's sort of struggling a little bit and she gets back in touch with this couple and reestablishes contact with them. And they love the kid, and she lets the babysit the kid, and things are going along. But when uh, they, they decide they'd like to keep the kid, and they, instead of returning the kid once from a babysitting uh, assignment, they contacted local social services people, and they said, this kid is in danger with Dominique. And social services swooped in and took the kid and gave it to Dominique's mother temporarily. 
and investigated and decided it was a false claim. So they returned the child to Dominique. But meanwhile, while the child was being babysat, uh, this couple, they drew the child's blood and took it for a test to establish that Ray was the father. And then Ray filed the petition seeking to be declared the father and to have parental rights, to have visitation, to have uh, uh, some say about the child's raising, et cetera, et cetera. Jeez. And so we end up in an Arizona court. And we've got two presumptions at work here because being the biological father gives him certain presumptive rights under the Constitution as a biological father. And of course, Dominique has spousal rights as being married to Giovanna when the child was born and having her name on the birth certificate. So you've got dueling presumptions here. And of course, presumptions are rebuttable. And the trial judge found that it was in the child's interest to stay with Dominique and that Ray's claim uh, was not as, as weighty that the, the presumption in favor of Dominique was weightier. She was bonded with the child. She had been raising the child and she was the child's mother, uh, even though she wasn't the biological mother. Uh, and this case was appealed to the Arizona Court of Appeals, which endorsed the trial judge on this. They said, when you have contesting parents, each of whom has a presumption of parental rights because of their relationship with the child in some way, the court has to decide which is the weightier and balance them. And to the extent that, uh, that Ray claimed that the court had not done a best interest evaluation, the court of appeals said, no, we see it right in the decision there. She said it was in the best interest of the child to stay with Dominique. And that Dominique, especially with the assistance of her mother, has the resources to raise the child, even though Giovanna is in prison. Uh, so, you know, it's, you know, you read these cases, these family law cases can sound like soap opera, but uh, here's one that turned out correctly. So, so creepy. Yeah. Uh. All right, Art, what a great roundup of all sorts of types of law that we had today. This will be um, our longest podcast in a long time. <laughs> I leave it to you to edit. You know what? What do people have to do besides listen to podcasts right now? Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for your expertise and for spending this afternoon with us. Good luck teaching at school. Um, and we'll be back to talk with you next month when we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the application of these Title VII, case, uh, Title VII cases under Bostock, yeah? Right, we've, we've already got some new cases for the September issue of One Outs. We're, right. we're re recording this about a week and a half into August, so. Uh, we'll preview for folks, it's going well in the federal courts as well as the state courts, and that's yes. great. All right, thank you so much, Harp. We'll see you again next month. Okay, bye-bye. And thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT Podcast can be found on iTunes or at legal.poppy.com. And I guess I've been asked if we're on Spotify. I don't believe we are, but coming soon to Spotify because I'll go ahead and get us up there too uh, so as many people as possible can have the opportunity to have access uh, to the wealth of knowledge that Art and our very special guests bring to this program. Please give us five stars, write a review on iTunes if you can. It helps other people dis discover us, share us widely. We will be back very soon with another episode of the Legal LGBT podcast with some special guests. Very exciting time. Thanks 